this evening we come to the preaching of God's Word. So if you would take a copy of God's Word, uh, take a Bible in hand, and turn to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah, or you could turn to the table of contents um, to then find Zephaniah, who is one of the 12, what is called, minor prophets of the Old Testament. And in general, the Old Testament's uh, prophet's message was a call to repent because judgment is coming to God's people. Zephaniah's name means the Lord hides. Often the prophet's name in the Old Testament is thematically linked to their particular ministry. And here in the book of Zephaniah, the question is, will all of Judah be judged or will the Lord hide some for himself? Now, it's a short book. It only has three chapters. Chapters one and two emphasize God's judgment against his people and the whole world. However, in what we're about to read, Zephaniah calls the people of God to rejoice. He calls them to sing God's praises. Why is that? He closes his book with a message of hope, and that is the reason for their song. But as he calls them to sing songs of praise, we see that the Lord is singing a song over his people. And that is what we'll give our attention to this Lord's Day evening. Before we read, let's ask for God's help and that he would speak to us in this passage from his holy word. Our great God, our heavenly Father, we ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will that comes from the Holy Spirit working in our lives and giving us wisdom and understanding so that we might walk in a manner worthy of our Lord, your Son, that we might be pleasing to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we would bear fruit in every good work and that we would increase in the knowledge of you, our God. So we ask that through the reading and preaching of your word, that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance so that we might have patience and joy. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Zephaniah chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 14, and we'll read through 17 this evening. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. 
Commenting on Zephaniah chapter 3, John Calvin gives several reasons why Christians struggle with God's love for them. The first is that even believers are still prone to unbelief at times. The second is that Satan will try to deceive us. Finally, the third reason Calvin suggests that Christians struggle with God's love for them is the same problem that we have today. Christians in his day, the people that he pastored, struggle with something that we struggle with. He said the third reason is that they get distracted from the word of God. Calvin's point is that when we get distracted from the word of God, our hearts will not be grounded in the love of God. Tonight, are you battling unbelief? Is your faith under attack from the, our adversary, Satan? Are you tempted to doubt God's love for you? Have recent events distracted you from seeking God through the study of his word? Every day, we have a decision to make. Will we make the most of the interruption to the status quo and seek the Lord? Or will we fill our days with Disney Plus and for our students possibly or some men in our church will we fill our days with video games? I personally have been fasting. Since Wednesday, I've been on a fast. It's an involuntary fast. It's an involuntary fast from watching sports. There has been an interruption to what I would normally use for entertainment, leisure, and relaxing. I have a decision to make. What will I fill those minutes, more like hours, with each week if there's no sports? Will I find something else to be distracted by? Or could this be an opportunity to seek the Lord? But I don't want to emphasize just what we ought to be doing with our time. I want us to be enticed by Zephaniah's message here. Enticed to seek God. Because if we listen carefully, Zephaniah wants to persuade us of God's love for us. What we just read is a fantastic description of God's saving love. I like the way that O. Palmer Robertson put it. He said, this passage here is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And that's why I've chosen it for our passage this evening. It's a passage that calls us to know and experience the love of God. And to dig into this beautiful description of God's saving love here, we need to consider three questions. The first is, who is this king? The passage tells us who, but I want us to think about it. Who is this king? And then we want to see in our text, how does this king save his people? That's the second question. The third one tonight is why? Why does the king save his people? First question, who is this king? Look back at verse 15, the second part there. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. The Lord is near to his people. 
Now, this would have been news for Zephaniah's first audience, possibly. It would have been news for Judah. They had a king. But here, Zephaniah proclaims to them that the Lord is their king. Zephaniah's ministry took place somewhere between 640 B.C. and 609 B.C. It was during the days of King Josiah. Zephaniah lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. During his lifetime, Judah was under the oppression of the Assyrians. And probably as a child, he grew up under the wicked reigns of Manasseh and Ammon. The wicked king so despised the law of God that someone hid the book of the law to preserve it. During the reign of King Josiah in 621 B.C., someone brought the written law of God out from its hiding place. Imagine as Josiah is taking the throne, a faithful scribe or priest brings the book of the law out and he reads it to the newly crowned king. And Josiah hears God's word read. He repents and he leads the nation in a spiritual reformation. The prophet Zephaniah was King Josiah's counterpart. He brought the prophetic element to the reformation that God was bringing to his people in Josiah's reign. Zephaniah was calling them back to covenant faithfulness to their Lord. Zephaniah was working with Josiah, and they saw significant gains. And compared to his predecessors and many other kings in Judah and Israel, Josiah was a great king. But if we keep reading in the Bible, we see that he was the last righteous king over Judah. His reforms did not last. He was not able to completely eradicate the rebellion, the deep-rooted idolatry, the spiritual syncretism, and the just complacency of Judah. Josiah's sons who ruled after him led the nation back to the apostasy of the previous kings. In less than a generation after Josiah and Zephaniah, Judah receives the condemnation for breaking covenant with God. Her enemies will conquer her. God will remove them from the land, and they are exiled in Babylon. The Babylonians destroy the temple. The kingly line of David seems to come to a screeching halt. But here, Zephaniah gives a picture of a king who brings salvation and restoration and redemption to the people of God. He is speaking of a day to come. Who is this king? We know that righteous Josiah wasn't enough. Zephaniah is pointing to another king. And there in verse 17 and in 15, it says that it is the Lord. And that's all capital L-O-R-D. It's the English translation for the Hebrew word Yahweh. We have one English word for Lord. There are two in the Hebrew, Adonai and Yahweh. Yahweh particularly is the covenant name of God, the name that God revealed to Moses. Zephaniah's message of hope begins with God will be the king of his people. God will be the king that they need. This is a good reminder right now. As the world faces a pandemic, we can be sure that the best of human leaders will let us down. But we as God's people have a king 
that rules above all kings for the sake of his church, for the purposes of his kingdom, and for his glory. And until we see that kingdom in its fullness, this passage reminds us to pray for our human leaders. Pray for our leaders in the government and to pray for our leaders in the church, knowing that they ultimately cannot be the king we need them to be, but our king has placed them in roles of authority now. And so pray that they might govern wisely, that they might steward resources well, especially pray for your elders, the church staff and deacons, growth group leaders, that they would have the mind of Christ, that they would minister and serve well in this time. Here at the end of Zephaniah's short book, we see the Lord Yahweh exercising his sovereign rule to save his people. And when we were frustrated, when the rulers of our day let us down, we look to our king, the one who will make all things right, the one who is governing for the good of his kingdom, the good of his people, and his own glory. Then we look back at verse 15 and we see specifically how this king saves his people. Look back at verse 15. It says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Very directly, the king saves his people by taking away their judgments. This would have been an interesting message to then close here Zephaniah's three chapters. He's been telling them about the pending judgment that is to face all sinners across the globe. And then he says, your king is the Lord and he will take away your judgments. Now it's important to realize that Yahweh, the Lord, the God that we meet in the scriptures didn't just have a personality change. It wasn't that something just shifted between the first two chapters and coming to the close of Zephaniah's book. The same Lord that would visit in judgment is now the one who would take away the judgments. It's not as if God says, sin doesn't bother me anymore. I'm just going to look past it and be what people think I should be, a nicer, kinder, gentler God. No, this king will not merely overlook sin, his holiness will not allow it. The debt from sin owed to the king will be satisfied. So how does the king remove the judgments against his people? Well, in our passage, Zephaniah is telling us that this king is Yahweh and this king is also the Messiah. That Yahweh and the Messiah are the same. They are something that we see plainly on the surface that the king is Yahweh, and in the light of Scripture, this king who is God would come as the promised Messiah. It is Yahweh who led the people out of Egypt, and he is also the promised Messiah who would be the descendant king coming from the line of David out of the tribe of Judah. 
It is the Old Testament prophets that promised that the Messiah would come and save God's people. And Zephaniah here is echoing the same message, looking back to Isaiah's prophecy. There in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 6, Isaiah describes the Messiah as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the one who will sit on the throne of David, the mighty God. And then in the beginning of verse 17, did you notice that there the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, a mighty one. Zephaniah is pointing us to what Isaiah would say about the Messiah. He's echoing the announcement of the mighty God is the mighty one, the mighty Savior. And so how will this king take away the judgment his people deserve? This king will do it as the Messiah. Zephaniah is looking back at Isaiah, and then he is pointing us forward to Jesus. He's pointing us forward to to Jesus specifically. We see it in John's gospel. There at Holy Week, at the triumphal entry, in John chapter 12, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's days away from his crucifixion. And when he arrives, crowds gather to welcome him. He is met with praise. And they are declaring him to be the king of Israel. We remember that day and it's coming up. It's Palm Sunday. It's just weeks away. As we are praying, it would be good to ask God that we could gather and worship on Palm Sunday together as a church family. If not, we will continue worshiping as we are. Would you join your prayers in asking God for that? But here on that day, at the triumphal entry, as the crowds gathered, do you remember what John writes? It says that Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is, it is written. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That quote is bringing together two different Old Testament passages. One Old Testament passage John is pointing us to is Zechariah 9.9. Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. But the phrase, fear not, O daughter of Zion, fear not is not found in Zechariah, but fear not is located here in Zephaniah 3.16. There, on that day it should be said to you, Jerusalem, fear not. What has John done? He's taken from Zechariah 9.9, and he's taken from Zephaniah 3.16, and he says these are about Jesus. These are about Jesus. John is telling us that Jesus is King Yahweh, the Messiah, the one that Zephaniah said would come and be in our midst, the one who would take away our judgment, the one who would bear our judgment on the cross. This side of the cross, we better understand how Zephaniah can bring a message of both judgment and salvation within just three chapters. Because the cross reveals the holiness of God and the mercy of God. There on the cross, the Son of God bore the wrath of God, taking away the judgment that belongs to his people by bearing that judgment himself. 
And so as the Apostle Paul will write in Romans 3.26, God is just and the justifier. John in his gospel tells more clearly what Isaiah and Zephaniah are pointing us to. Only the God-man, Jesus, the Son of God, can be the king who fulfills the promises of salvation. Only Jesus can fulfill God's promise to take away the judgment of his people. I remind us of the gospel yet again this evening. We are in serious times. We need to take this pandemic very seriously. But we do have to remind ourselves that we should not fear this virus. We should fear facing the judgment of our sins without any covering. We should fear having to give an account for our lives. Jesus cares for people, body and soul. And it's in his own ministry, I think we see clearly that as he cares for our ailing physical bodies, he says that the salvation of our souls, the forgiveness of sins is more important. That's not to downplay anyone's physical suffering now. It's a reminder that we should fear the judgment of God more than any sickness or virus. Remember those friends who took a paralytic man and brought him to Jesus, and they couldn't get through the crowd, and so they climbed to the roof, and they ripped through the roof, and they lowered the man down before Jesus. What did Jesus first do? Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders that were there watching became indignant and upset to forgive sins. That's the prerogative of God and only God. And here this rabbi is forgiving sins. And do you remember what Jesus says in Mark 2? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say Rise, take up your bed and walk. And so he tells the man, take up your bed and walk, and he does. He leaves healed, but more importantly, he leaves forgiven. We see it again in John chapter 5, the story of the invalid, a man who was invalid for 38 years. Jesus heals him. He does it on the Sabbath. The religious leaders don't like it. They try to track this man down and saying, who did this to you? Who healed you on the Sabbath? And later, Jesus found him in the temple in John chapter 5 and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Is Jesus threatening him that his invalid state would return if he was to, to sin? No, I don't think that's what the Savior had to say to that man he healed. I believe what he was pointing out to him, saying that it's no good if you can walk if you end up in hell. That if you do not turn from your sins, repent, and trust in me, then something worse would happen to you than being an invalid for nearly 40 years. Judgment is worse than the virus. And we must recognize that there are many around us today that are not ready 
for the judgment seat of God. So I exhort you to act in a way that exercises love for your neighbors in order that we may do our responsible part to flatten the curve so that many more will have time to repent because judgment is much worse than sickness. And I must ask you, listening tonight, on the day of judgment, what are you trusting in? Does your conscience bear witness to your guilt? As the world is fighting a pandemic, are you ready to meet your maker? Have you trusted in the sacrifice of King Jesus to take away your judgment? And King Jesus calls to you today and says, trust in me, I am the one who is mighty to save and there is no other savior. Would you tonight come to King Jesus and have the burden of guilt removed, your judgment removed? He gives you his righteousness in exchange for your condemnation. He offers it to all who would come and call on his name. How does the king save his people? He does it by bearing the judgment for them. Why does the king save his people? Well, I think the why begins in verse 17. He is the one who is mighty to save, but then notice in the second half of the verse, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Let's begin with quiet you by his love. What does that mean? Well, typically in the Old Testament, we saw it this morning in Psalm 23, one of the Hebrew words used to describe the love of God is hesed. Hesed is God's covenant, unfailing love. But in this verse, verse 17 of Zephaniah chapter 3, it's a different word for love. It's the word ahava. Now, the best example of ahava is the love story between Jacob and Rachel in Genesis chapter 29. That's where the word is used, and it's the story where Jacob sees Rachel, falls in love with her from the moment he laid eyes on her. And get this, he worked seven years of hard labor to take her hand in marriage, and at the end of seven years, listen to what Genesis 29, 20 says. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her, because of the ahava he had for her. Zephaniah is telling us that this type of love that Jacob had for Rachel, this is the passionate, deep love the Lord has for his redeemed. Consider the Ahava of King Jesus who left his throne in heaven, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried because of his passionate love for his father and his passionate love for his people. But the verse tells of a quieting love there. He will quiet you by his love. 
The word quiet is not an adjective, it's a verb, too quiet. And actually, the subject is not us, but the subject is God. The New American Standard Translation gets at what the original is trying to communicate. It says that he will be quiet in his love. It's saying that God will be quiet in his love over his people. It's a challenging translation. It's not necessarily the grammar that is complicated in the Hebrew. It's the implications of what it's saying. It's saying that God is quiet in his love over us. It's giving this picture of God contemplating how much he loves his people, his desire for the redeemed. The problem is not God's ability to love like this, but the problem is the part that we might find hard to believe is the object of God's deep contemplating love. It's one thing for the transcendent God to delight in his creation, but to have this sort of love for redeemed sinners blows our minds. Charles Spurgeon on this passage advises us, remember the silence of Jesus and expound this text whereby. And Spurgeon goes on to point at Jesus' trial and crucifixion where Jesus did not say a word because of the joy set before him, willing to endure the cross, despising the shame. As the prophet Isaiah said, like a sheep before its shearers, is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The quietness of the love of God speaks of the depth of his love, and words cannot exhaust the extent of his love. But it's not just the quiet love. There at the close of the verse, it says that God sings over you. Music is powerful. Singing is powerful. Think of singing the star-spangled banner at a baseball game. Or maybe God bless America on the 4th of July. Or precious Christmas carols in the month of December. Or hymns that the church has shared for centuries. We sang it earlier, Amazing Grace. Have you ever sang Amazing Grace at the funeral of a believer? It's powerful. When was the last time someone sang a song over you? Maybe it was happy birthday? This is a picture of a groom who loves his bride, the church. And at the ceremony, goes from a deep contemplation of that love and bursts out in song. Zephaniah is waxing poetically about God's delight in saving sinners. And we need this. Because at some point we all ask the same question. God, can you really love me? Knowing everything about me, can you truly love me? If you have been reconciled to God through the cross of his son, God is singing a love song over you. Not because you were good, not because you were obedient, not because you prayed and read your Bible. All these things do please your heavenly father, but they are not the why he set his pleasure on you. 
As the Puritan Matthew Henry put it, God doesn't just love you. He loves to love you. God doesn't just love you. He loves to love you. Believer in Jesus, I want to remind you tonight that no matter what your relationship status on social media says, there is a love for you that is unmatched. To the married person who's in a marriage that is challenging and not exactly what you signed up for, there is a love for you that is unmatched. Maybe you have lost the love of your life and you feel incapable of picking up the pieces and moving on. There is a love for you that is unmatched. Maybe you're still single and the, you thought you should have found someone by now because that's what everyone keeps telling you. And the years go by and you wonder if you will ever know that love, that love that you desire is found in King Jesus. It is a love that is unmatched. Maybe close friends have betrayed you and let you down and you feel all alone. Maybe you haven't left the house in days. You're alone, quarantined, isolated from loved ones. Hear the song of your God singing over you tonight. There is a love for you that is unmatched. We don't know how long Life is normal, normal life will be interrupted. We don't know how hard the road ahead of us will be. We can know that we are loved with an everlasting love. So do not be distracted, but make the most of the time and open the word of God and let your God sing over you and hear the song of the gospel and be persuaded of the deep, deep, passionate love of the triune God. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Jesus, our Savior, we stand amazed that while we were yet sinners, you showed your love for us by dying for us. May that grip our hearts and souls and may it drive us to seek you, to pursue you, and may it motivate us to be witnesses of this good news to a world that is filled with questions and concerns, fears and anxiety, to a world that is often unaware of what they sh should truly be afraid of, the judgment to come. So may we be faithful and bold witnesses to a love that would die on the cross for undeserving people. May we share it with our neighbors and our coworkers and with those whom you put in a path. And may we know it to be true in the depths of our being. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.